నమస్తే నమస్కారం వెల్కమ్ టు ద ఫస్ట్ ఫుల్ ఎపిసోడ్ ఆఫ్ ఖూనీ ద క్రైమ్స్ ఆఫ్ ఇండియా యప్ దాట్స్ ఆర్ ఫుల్ నేమ్ లెట్ ఆస్ నో ఇఫ్ యూ థింక్ ఇట్స్ టూ క్యాంపీ ఎనీవే హౌ ఇస్ హ్యాష్ ట్యాగ్ లాక్డౌన్ లైఫ్ వీ కైన్ ఆర్ లూజింగ్ అవర్ మైండ్స్ హియర్ వీ హోప్ యూ ఆల్ ఆర్ హ్యాంగింగ్ ఆన్ ఫర్ డియర్ లైఫ్ ఎట్ లీస్ట్ Yeah, lockdown life has been very tough on my dog. We've had to cut down on outside time, so he gets very antsy. And I don't know what upsets me more. When I have to change into proper pants and put on a mask every time I have to take him outside for a walk, or when he's jumping up and down for a walk for the nth time, and I have to say no to the poor thing. How are you guys dealing with dogs in your apartments? Huh? What is the poop situation like? Help me out. Let me know. Oh, Lazoo. You guys can actually see a picture of him in one of our earlier Instagram posts. And meanwhile, I have forgotten how outside looks like. Okay, fine. I've forgotten how the outside of my colony looks like, but still. I've been working home since almost 20 days now and it's absolutely maddening. I'm slowly losing track of days and dates. I literally asked Alexa what day it was like 3 times last week. On that note, Indian people who live with their parents or family at home and cannot drink or smoke at home, how is that situation coming? How are you finding ways around it? I thank my lucky stars every day that I can drink at home. Yeah, you lucky bitch. Okay, so for our first episode, we have chosen a case that many 90s kids would have been eternally fascinated by. The Tandoor murder. You mean North Indian kids, right? I didn't know about this. Dude, how? Sharma was caught in Bangalore. It was a media circus. Let me tell you something, dear listeners. Aditi has been talking about this case ever since this podcast was just an idea. Like all she said was Tandoor, 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 this, Tandoor, that. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, they were flashing photos of Tandoor's, just random Tandoor's on new screens. all the time 24/7 as far as media sensations go this was a riot and so much that happened around it continues to happen even today yeah fake news check extramarital affairs check courtroom drama check headline hunting corruption police chase political clout check 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 and check you name it this case has it all This is not just the story of a grisly murder. It's a story of abuse at the hands of a single narcissistic man who was helped along the way as many powerful men are to delay justice as much as possible. But it is also the story of many public servants and common people who persevered and ensured that justice was done. Primarily for research apart from the media reports We have relied on this fantastic book by Mr. Maxwell Pereira, the main cop in this case, and India's super cop in general. Seriously, look up his role in the Sikh program of 1984 and just compare that to Delhi Police's record over the last few months. His book is mandatory reading for any true crime buff in India, not just for the crime, but also for the insights into the working of the Indian criminal justice system. We've also looked into judgments from Sharma's appeals in both the Delhi court, Delhi High Court and the Supreme Court. The 2nd of June 1995 was a hot sultry day in Delhi as it is every year. Beat constable Abdul Nazir Kunju and home guard Chandrapal were patrolling the western court Janpath beat. 
Delhiites will know this area as the heart of Delhi, Janpat, Jantar Mantar Road, Ashoka Hotel, etc. At around 11:30 p.m., they both noticed flames rising from the Bagya Barbecue, a restaurant within Yatri Nivas. The guard at Yatri Nivas told them that there was nothing to worry about, that they were just burning some waste paper and cardboard and the constables should be on their way. But by now, people on the road were raising alarm. The flames were enormous, about 30 to 40 feet over the boundary wall of the barbecue hotel. So Kunju and Pal, who were being blocked by the guard, decided to climb over the 7 feet wall to examine the fire for themselves. Inside, they noticed three men standing around the fire who ignored Kunju's frantic yelling to extinguish the flame. One of the men in a pristine white kurta pajama and of stocky build even told Kunju that he was a Congress karyakarta, a political worker, and they were just burning old camping material. But Kunju was not deterred. By this time, more police officers along with the sub-inspector had arrived on the scene. Everyone together tried to douse the fire. Once the fire had been extinguished to some extent, Kunju noticed some damage to a plastic-coated electrical wires overhead and climbed up the building to examine it. But as soon as they were upstairs, they realized that the fire had been lit again. Exasperated and cursing under his breath, I imagine, Kunju rushed down to douse the fire. But this time, he detected the unmistakable stench of burning flesh. As he investigated further, he saw among the rubble of paper the charred remains of a human body. The three men had fled. By this time, several police officers including Pereira and the fire brigade had arrived at the hotel and Kunju in the meanwhile had managed to get hold of one of the men, Keshav Kumar, who was also the manager of the hotel. Many news outlets reported that the body had been found chopped up, but as Pereira will tell you every chance he gets, this was not true. The limbs of the corpse had in fact broken apart due to the sheer heat of the tandoor. The corpse belonged to a woman. Vestiges of her hair in a bun had somehow survived the fire, as had some of her clothing. Bone fragments and silver anklets were discovered from the tandoor. A black polythene sheet with blood stains was lying nearby. and significantly blood stains were also found on keshav's clothes the police realized from the staff at the hotel and from the entry in the security guard's register that sushil sharma the owner of the restaurant and second of the three men stoking the fire earlier had driven into the restaurant at 10:15 pm that night pulled out a large bag from the boot of his car this was important it showed that the murder scene was actually somewhere else Later on after initial reluctance Keshav Kumar confirmed Sharma's activities and most importantly he gave two critical details the scene of the crime Sharma's first floor flat in Delhi Imperial zone area in Mandirmark and the name of the victim Ravi Naina Sani Sharma's wife on the morning of 3rd July 1995 Sushil Sharma was officially named the perpetrator by the police. Sushil Sharma and Ravi Naina Sani lived together as a couple in Delhi's Mandir Mark in a first floor apartment. They were both involved in politics. 
while sharma had been the president of the delhi pradesh youth congress naina was its general secretary but naina was also so much more born into a humble family naina was ambitious talented and hard working she was a swimmer had a private pilot license from london and ran a successful boutique in delhi all before the age of 30 and in addition to her political career well she was a go getter wasn't she i mean i feel so inadequate yeah same she was extremely liberated given the era and her middle class background she was fond of drinking and socializing apparently her favorite drink was a bloody mary but only she used tomato soup and not tomato juice Oh, bloody mary is so bad as is i mean and with tomato soup yuck <laughs> and and since i have all the time in the world and also a bottle of kettle one vodka at home i tried it no and i did it so you all don't have to but um, not a fan yeah no surprises there but way to take one for the team i'm proud of you i did it in the interest of research y'all and no i did not use the ready to cook soup i made tomato soup like boiled tomatoes and actually cooked the soup don't try this bloody mary recipe at home don't anyway moving on before sushil nana had been in a living relationship with colleague matloob karim while the relationship had not worked out they had evidently parted on cordial terms and kareem remained a close friend till her bitter end sadly he was one of the reasons for the rift in her marriage kareem testified that nena had asked him to inquire about sharma's antecedents in 1989 because he had proposed to her kareem had not come back with a favorable report of course but sharma was able to manipulate nena by telling her that people were just jealous of his success he ultimately managed to convince her that convince her to marry him after he helped her aunt out with a land dispute and sometime in 1992 they solemnized their marriage in a private ceremony despite starting out as a love marriage it quickly dissolved into a toxic mess within 6 months Multiple witnesses gave statements about the mental and physical abuse Sushil subjected Nana to. The crucial first-person account comes from Ramnivas Dubey, who stayed in the house and helped out with odd jobs. Nana was distraught that Sushil would not make their marriage public. I wonder why. Yeah, Matloob Karim uh, stated that Sushil felt for some reason that the marriage would ruin his political career. Dude. It's politics, not Bollywood. Yeah, God knows why Sushil felt that way. I mean, it's hard to tell. But these fights would turn violent, and Sushil would beat her with legs, fist, and sticks. Sushil was clearly a mean drunk. In their testimony, Nena and Sushil's neighbors stated that once they had witnessed a scuffle between the two, where Sushil was pulling Nena inside the house while she attempted to escape. Yep, fuck these Indian neighbors. Of course, like every neighbor we know, they just watch, get entertained and leave. Yeah, it was really bizarre that the neighbors did not offer help or at least, you know, report the matter to the police, but you know, India. So, anyway, like a typical abuser, Sushil was also extremely controlling. 
Sometimes he would lock Naina inside the house while he was out. Sometimes he would tell Dubey to go with her wherever she went and later report to him. He suspected that she was having an affair. In fact, he was so paranoid that even Dubey was not allowed to be alone with her in the house while Sharma was out. One time, he also locked her out of their home after a fight. She was forced to give up her political career and business. And to top it all off, it seems he was also a consummate womanizer and had been having an affair. Kareem recalled advising Nena to talk to her parents or the police and Nena had refused. She had been too scared that Sushil, who had friends among the force, would somehow manipulate the system and implicate her in a false case. And since marrying Sushil had been her own choice, her parents would not support her either. Remember this because we will elaborate on her parents' role a little bit later. The following note was recovered from their home by the police, written by Nena, addressed to Sushil. I know you hate me. You cannot accept me, so do not waste your time. Take care of yourself and forgive me and leave me to my fate. We cannot continue like this because I cannot win your confidence even by killing myself. Take away whatever you have to. Do not misunderstand me. Don't let your life be spoiled. I know I do not deserve you. Leave me and make the best from your life. But do not say anything to my family. They're innocent. If you want to, you can punish me. Damn it, Nana. Damn it. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine the gaslighting? While people around her could sense that all was not right with her marriage, Nana herself spoke little about it. Many were surprised after her death to find out that she was being abused. And this is something we always get wrong about victims of domestic abuse also. I mean, we think that they will speak up, seek help. But the guilt and the shame of a failed marriage, often borne disproportionately by women, commits them to silence. We don't realize how many people put up a brave face, feign normalcy, and go about their day while their spirit is being broken at home on a daily basis. But Nena's spirit, though, may have been bruised. It was definitely not broken. She had written this note as a sort of goodbye to Sushil. For she was migrating to Australia to start a new life away from him. And Matloop Karim had been helping her out. On the night of her death, Nena had been talking to Karim on the phone, discussing her travel plans. Later that night, when Sushil came home, he redialed the last number, heard Kareem's voice on the other end, and hung up. Gosh, it must have been nerve-wracking to live in that home with him. He's following her around, checking who she's talking to over the phone. I mean, I read that Nana was even afraid to bring her friends over to her own house. I mean, this girl was constantly looking over her shoulder, constantly walking on eggshells around him. Ugh, I can't even imagine. Sushil had been drinking... And his rage was building up steadily. He found his revolver, walked up to Nana and fired three rounds. Two hit her in the head and the neck, killing her instantly. And the third lodged itself in the plywood surrounding their air conditioner. He changed out of his bloody clothes, then wrapped her in a bedsheet and a plastic sheet, loaded her into the boot of his white Maruti 800 and then drove to Tilak Bridge so he could dispose of her body in the Yamana. But it was too crowded. There was too much traffic. 
too many witnesses. So he thought of a new plan. Now he headed to Bagia Barbecue, remembering the giant tandoor in the restaurant. He was part owner of the restaurant and there were few allegations that the tender for the contract of this restaurant was also given to them illegally. Mm, yeah, I mean, ITDC, which awards the contracts, was skewered in the media for this. Is there anything? I mean, is there anything in this case that isn't a giant clusterfuck? But as we saw earlier, his nefarious plan was thwarted by the tenacious Kunju, even though Sharma had escaped for now. His movements over the week till his surrender on 10th July and all his machinations during the trial reveal a cold and calculating criminal mind. One has to understand that by the morning on 3rd July, Sharma's name was plastered on every single TV screen in the country. His head was being demanded, not just by opposition parties, but even leaders of the Youth Congress in a bid to immediately delink him from the ruling party. And yet, Sharma managed to elude the police for seven days. His first stop after escaping the police at Bagia was his own home. He tries to clean as much blood as possible and then washes his own bloody clothes from earlier. Then he packs a briefcase, grabs about 2.25 lakh in cash and a fully loaded revolver and heads out. His next stop is Gujarat Bhavan, where IAS officer DK Rao books a room for him for two nights. Now, it is unclear whether Rao knew at this point about the murder. It was still nighttime and news had not broken out yet. DK Rao deposed that on this night, Sharma had not confessed his wife's murder at the time. He merely said, Kuch gadbad hai, something is wrong. Rao's role is limited to just booking a room for Sharma, in good faith, as he put it. Which, by the way, sounds super shady, but and it's not a crime, unless Rao knew everything. Rao said that Sharma did confess about the murder, but only on 4th July, after the phone from Bombay. And he had then advised Sharma to surrender. But who knows how true this is? And this fact has been pointed out by both the trial and the high court. Rao did not approach the police after his extrajudicial confession. Later, Rao would stand trial for harboring an offender from punishment, but uh, would be acquitted for the lack of evidence. Let's for a moment look at Devarapalli Kishore Rao. This guy is a real piece of work. He was the chairman of the Vishakapatnam Trust, and he faced allegations of embezzlement. Rao was also compulsorily retired from service by the union and was later reinstated by the Central Administrative Tribunal. Now, back when I was litigating, my boss was one of the standing counsels for the Sport Trust. And believe me, that organization, like all Indian government organization, was a nightmare to deal with, even without having people like this. This is just a typical example of an Andhra blue blood who thinks that the world is his oyster. Why blue blood? His daddy was a Congress politician. Of course. Okay. Anyway, the last we've heard of him... Jagan gave him a Congress party ticket in 2014. And in India, most bad things go unpunished. And this is just an example of that. Sushil is in fact aided by many associates in Delhi, including his business partners, 
who helped him abandon his car on Malchamark and eventually escaped to Jaipur by road. In the meantime, the police questioned everyone involved with Sharma. Friends, parents, associates, a tip line was set up, a nationwide manhunt was launched. Sensing that Sharma may try to escape to Nepal, appropriate authorities had been told to be on the lookout. They were also coordinating with CBI's Interpol liaison officers. The police even obtained a caveat from Delhi High Court against grant of bail to Sharma without first informing Delhi police so that they wouldn't be caught off guard when Sharma applied for anticipatory bail. But unfortunately, despite their best efforts, they were outsmarted by Sharma for days. Somehow, between 3rd and 7th July, Sharma travelled from Delhi to Jaipur, Jaipur to Bombay, Bombay to Chennai, and eventually Chennai to Bangalore. (laughs) He even managed to squeeze in a trip to Tirupati somewhere in the middle. Great. So he's vacationing, huh? Fugitive life must be so tough. Yeah. In Chennai, Sharma managed to obtain an interim anticipatory bail which is bizarre and very bad news for the Delhi police. So while the Delhi police prepared to undo this damage, a public outcry against the order arose. The bail order had been granted hastily and on flimsy grounds. This was a serious case. Sharma had been caught burning the body of his deceased wife and was on the run. The court should have practiced restraint. This was a clear misuse of law and in fact Madras High Court also made the same observation later when a slew of PILs, media frenzy and public demand obligated the court to cancel the bail order. Sharma's second move was to surrender before the Bangalore police. This was puzzling but strategic. By surrendering, his counsel could argue that Sharma was cooperating with the police and should be in judicial custody rather than police custody. That way, he could avoid interrogation, he could manipulate the system and delay his custody with the Delhi police, and thus he could delay the investigation and trial altogether. In fact, Sharma never let even a single opportunity slipped by. Even in the custody of Bangalore police, he spoke to the media, claiming his innocence, crying about how he was being framed by his political rivals. Sometime during his escape, he managed to take a trip to Tirupati, where he had his head tonsured. He would later... Yeah. He would later leverage his Brahmin caste to say that he was a religious man who did not deserve this. I am not surprised at the least. Yeah. So in his book, Pereira writes about this in detail. And it is easy to see how frustrated Pereira is with the judicial system, the politicians, and also the media. Eventually, Delhi police secured custody of Sharma and traveled back to Delhi. So let's talk about Sushil for a minute. Student politics in India is dirty business even today. And it was the same during Sushil's time. During his days at the NSUI, which is the student wing of the Congress, and the DPYC, he cultivated a reputation as a restrained man in public, but willing to do whatever it takes to rise through the ranks. There are reports of him being violent, threatening colleagues, earning money by nefarious means, etc. He maintained close links with key Congress functionaries and also shady people like Tejpal and Jamil, who were known land grabbers and extortionists. He understood the value of debt. Many people owed him favours, including Nena's own family. As you would remember, he had asked Nena to marry him only after helping her aunt out in a land dispute case. And it paid him dividends during his trial. Sleazebag. Now, Nena's family members refused to believe that their daughter could have been the victim of any foul play at the hands of their own son-in-law from the get-go. 
while they insisted that naina and sushil were a legally married couple they never blamed him for their her death this inner obsession with thinking their son in law is some great incarnation of an indian god needs to go like asap according to matloob her brothers had even joined sushil in meeting her imagine that bizarrely her family also refused to identify their daughter's remains although according to perera her mother was visibly upset when she saw the corpse naina was first identified by matloob karim and later more conclusively by a dna analysis a fairly new technology in india at that time did you know they tested the dna sample in ccmb hyderabad that's literally 15 minutes away from where i grew up just to point out to everyone that jisneha sindhu is bragging about living near a dna testing facility that's it that's the sentence okay in fact i think i knew someone whose parents were scientists there okay moving on her family refused to accept her body to perform her last rites it was only after much persuasion that her sister who by the way was in kerala claimed her remains and no- and her family performed her last rites what was moving though was that many women's organizations volunteered to perform her last rites according to punjabi traditions and one offer surprisingly came from phoolan devi and i cannot overstate how much i admire this woman i mean we will do an episode on her later but for now like let it be known that we are big fans <laughs> yeah that we are ravinaena sani paid a heavy price for her independence during her lifetime she was humiliated by her husband her family did not support her then her life was cut short abruptly because of a megalomaniac her family did not support her even after her death Sushil Sharma violated the dignity of her mortal remains by burning them in a hotel's tandoor, almost depriving her of a sacred funeral. Even then, her family did not support her. The only time her family interceded on her behalf was to defend her from the savage vilification of the media. She was being portrayed as a woman of loose morals, a woman in 1995. from a middle class family who deserted her traditional family values she drank she had ambition she had dared to love a man outside her community she had even dared to marry against her family's wishes she hobnobbed with powerful politicians maybe even seduced them she was having an extramarital affair ravi nana sani was everything an ideal bharatiya nari should not be how dare she in fact ayu khan sushil's counsel in the trial also pointed out that naina loved to party and socialize all in a bid to assassinate her character boy defense counsels love that don't they if a woman is a victim no matter what the crime it has to be her fault somehow yeah man yeah of course <laughs> now after her funeral her family released a statement to push back against the media narrative but this statement too is more to shield their own reputation than their daughters while they defended their daughter's character and highlighted her many many accomplishments they insisted that she was a dutiful bahu and even praised her for abandoning her career at sushil's insistence evidently that is all that mattered to her family ultimately in a final disservice to their daughter and sister her family did not testify against sushil in the trial 
Sushil himself was a master manipulator. During his interrogation, he switched between gloating about his political career and pretending to be sick to avoid questioning. Although he always admitted that Nana had died at his hands, his story kept changing in an effort to make it look accidental. When taken to identify her remains at Lady Harding Medical College, he made a big show of breaking down in front of the police. This was in fact noted by the Supreme Court later when his sentence had been appealed. The judges said it indicated remorse. But Pereira notes how later in front of the media he changed track and said that there was nothing left to identify or the remains did not belong to Nana. This was done in a bid to convince everyone that this was just a big plot hatched by his political rivals to end his career. In court his counsel would claim that the dead body wasn't even Nana's despite the positive ID by Karim, Keshav's testimony and the DNA evidence. In fact Sushil made the ridiculous claim that Nana is alive and that the police are just hiding this fact from coming out. But but did you know who thought there was something wrong with Sushil? his local chaiwala really oh. the chaiwala near his parents house they always know man the tapriwalas always know you buy one chai and one cigarette from them for a week they will tell you your entire past present and future <laughs> yeah even from behind bars in police custody sushil exerted his influence remember keshav he had been terrified of sushil from the very beginning it had been very difficult to interrogate him and his fears were not unfounded so she constantly threatened him and his family in another chilling incident keshav fainted after eating his food in prison and it was strongly suspected that sushil had arranged for him to be poisoned but there was no proof bear in mind that at this time both sushil and keshav are in police custody sushil is behind bars right now that's how much influence sushil wielded We would like to mention here the curious case of two autopsies performed on Nana's body. Turns out that the first one was performed by an incompetent headline hunting medical examiner who we shall not name but you guys can look him up if you want. This report made two critical mistakes. Firstly, it stated that Nana's body was dismembered even before being thrown into the tandoor. And secondly, there were no gunshot wounds on her despite the shell casings and the residue being discovered at the scene of the crime thankfully though a second accurate autopsy was performed later by a board of surgeons but a lot of damage was already caused by the first report obviously the media went crazy with the story of the dismemberment in fact even today if you google the case there are some news articles which will misrepresent this detail Secondly, Sharma was able to say that he had not shot his wife. Instead, hit her on her head during an argument, thereby arguing that her death was accidental. As we all know, the second autopsy was admitted by the courts, and in fact, this is a landmark case for admissibility of a second autopsy as evidence. After many trials and tribulations ultimately Sharma was convicted in 2003 and sentenced to death by sessions court. Keshav received 7 years rigorous imprisonment for his role in the crime. Sharma appealed his conviction but it was upheld by both the Delhi High Court in 2007 and later the Supreme Court in 2013. But the Supreme Court did commute his sentence to life imprisonment. 
A three-judge bench observed that the murder was the outcome of a strained personal relationship, it was not an offence against society, and since Sharma had no previous criminal record, death sentence was not warranted in this case. It should be noted, and we all know this by now, that death penalty in India is only given in the rarest of rare cases to be determined by the courts on a case-to-case basis. Yeah, all you Indian legal fraternity people who are listening to this podcast, here's a fun fact. Guess who was on that bench who gave the above judgment? Justice Ranjan, sexual harassment allegations will ruin a man's career, but is now sitting in the Rajshabha Gogoi. Reflect on that. Take a minute. In 2018, Sharma was granted remission and released after 23 years in captivity. He claims to be a reform man. In prison, he says he turned to scriptures and took courses in computers to pass the time. He says his slate has been wiped clean. Sunetra Chaudhary. I'm having a total fangirl moment here. (laughs) In her book, Behind Bars, Prison Tales of India's Most Famous, interviewed Sharma when he was still imprisoned. His future plans include setting up a three-month diploma course for couples who are about to get married to ensure that they are compatible. What? Oh my God. Can you imagine being the first unsuspecting couple who takes this godforsaken marriage course? And also, does he think compatibility was the issue with his marriage and not his raging narcissism? Dude, plenty of incompatible couples come out of their marriages alive. Oh, that's not all. He also has developed weird theories about marriage, such as instead of loving his wife, the husband should only respect her because apparently, and quote, the problem is that when a husband loves a wife, then because of physical intimacy, it leads to high expectations. A man should only love his children and just respect his wife. Excuse me? Are you fucking kidding me? None of these sentences sound like taking any responsibility to me. No, no, no. And Pereira is credulous of his reform claims, although he does concede that Sharma has paid his debt to society. He was undeniably a model prisoner and you all want to believe in second chances, right? Rehabilitation and whatnot. But knowing what we know about this miserable piece of shit, it is hard to take his claims of reform seriously. The truth is that if he had not killed Nana Sani and Nana for some reason had stayed with him, He would have continued his abuse. He may have broken down momentarily once or twice after Nena's murder, but that was fleeting remorse and it was not enough for him to take responsibility ever. He was a self-serving narcissist to the very end. He bribed, threatened, lied and cheated till the very end. He denied Nena her dignity till the very end. And we will end the story with the words of Matloob Karim who remained her ally in life and death. If she had her way, Nena Sani would be designing and selling garments in Australia, or maybe piloting an aircraft for a living. Short of that, she hoped that her name would figure in newspapers in the credit line for spicy recipes. And that is the story of Tandoor Murder. Gives me the chills. Anyway, let us know what you think. Please share your feedback on Insta and on Twitter. You can now listen to us on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn Radio, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and Stitcher. All the links for our sources are also given in the description box below in case you feel like digging a little deeper. That's it for today. See you very soon.